Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I want to talk to us a little bit about the patriarchs. I think I may spend a few weeks teaching about the patriarchs. In, in recent weeks, we discussed some of the distinctions between the church and Israel and what is, what is our relationship to Israel. And a lot of that has to do with an understanding of the patriarchs, who we call the patriarchs in the Bible. Now, if you look at the term in the Bible, you'll find it applied, uh, I believe, in the book of Hebrews to Abraham. He's referred to as a patriarch. David is referred to as a patriarch. And then the 12 sons of Jacob, which became the tribes of Israel, those are referred to as the patriarchs, plural. So the term really just means fathers. And it can be applied, if you look at the term father in the Bible, you'll see that it's, it's used to describe these people and other people that are in the line of Israel. It's really talking about your previous generations. But when you speak among Christians about the patriarchs, you're generally talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's usually what people mean by it. But I want you to be aware that it has other applications, right? The word just generally means the fathers, but it's often speaking of these three that were the earliest in the line, if you will, of that family that eventually became Israel. So it's a father, son, grandson set of people that are in view when I'm talking about the patriarchs here. And ultimately, this is what the nation of Israel grew out of through those 12 sons of Jacob. This is important in the Bible because it is a picture, in many respects, of the New Testament church. So when you look at things going on in Israel in the Old Testament, there's a tendency among some Christians to say, well, that was the Old Testament. We really just need to focus on the New Testament. Well, is that the correct attitude? Let's take a look. Look at Romans 15.4. We're going to start in the New Testament to kind of get a little bit of a sense of what the New Testament's attitude is towards the Old Testament. Should we put up a solid wall of partition as Christians between the Old Testament and the New Testament such that all we really need to do is focus on the New Testament and the, the Old Testament has no relevance to us anymore? Romans 15 and 4 says this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now that's Paul talking about the Old Testament. That verse alone obliterates the idea that the Old Testament has no bearing on the New Testament Christian's life. He's saying, when he's talking about the Scriptures, by the way, this is at a time when the New Testament was being written. He would not deny that some things that had been written during his lifetime were now part of the Scripture, but he's primarily speaking of the things written aforetime. He's talking about the Old Testament books. So they still have application to God's people. So if we cross that bridge and we say, okay, we, we're not going to say it has no application. It has some application. Now there's a second thing that God's people can trip over. You can start saying, well, it must have total application to what we do. But when you're dealing with typology, which is a symbology in the Old Testament, and the actual fulfillment of it in the form of the New Testament church and God's spiritual Israel that's revealed in the New Testament, you always have to deal with both continuity and discontinuity, right? 
What I mean by that is that if you take a metaphor and apply it to God's people, you say something like, oh, we like sheep have gone astray, right? That sort of thing. That's a metaphor, and it's speaking of our waywardness, how we are prone to wander away from God, and God is a shepherd who brings us back in. That's the metaphor that's intended by that, but you could take that to another level. You could say, well, I don't see that any of us are covered in wool, right? I don't see that any of us, you know, live out in a field, and, and uh, you know, we're not... You can take all these literal aspects of what a sheep is and start trying to apply it to God's people. Well, now you've taken the metaphor beyond its intent and you're trying to create continuities between things that really shouldn't be there. So as you're handling this symbology of the Old Testament, you need to kind of be drilling into the matter of what's the point of what's trying to be made here, not trying to create and tie together every possible parallel that could exist. You see that? So that's the second thing that people trip over. They say, well, if the Old Testament is applicable, then maybe we need to go back into Leviticus and start saying, well, well there were all these dietary laws. So uh, we need to start eating the way they did in the Old Testament. And they were stoning adulteresses. And you know, there are all sorts of things they did in the Old Testament. Maybe we should be doing those things too. Well, you always have to manage this matter of continuity and discontinuity. There, there are things that the Old Testament symbolizes for us, and you need to, to glean those things out without taking it to the extreme of trying to say, basically, we're back under the law again, because that would be the other extreme of the matter. So the funny thing about it is that as you look in the New Testament, it refers back to the Old Testament so many times that it's kind of silly to think that there's no application to us. And as you look through the examples in the New Testament, it'll start drawing out the sort of lessons that we're supposed to be drawing from the Old Testament. So Paul says that over in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. I've preached on this verse before. Now all these things happened unto them, talking about those in the Old Testament. All these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The things in the Old Testament are written so that people in the New Testament could get lessons out of them, right? A lot of those lessons, if you were to generally put it under a category, it's something along the lines of obey God and things will go well with you. Generally in life, if you will obey and trust God and do as He says, things are going to go better for you than if you don't. Now, we know that in this world we'll have tribulation. We know we're going to have trouble and issues, and we're going to have things that we struggle with, those afflictions that come upon us. Some of them are externally imposed, and we didn't do anything to cause them, but we have to endure them nonetheless. We, if we just recognize that premise, and that's a reality, well, you know what? If in the midst of that you then also try well, I think I'll just start disobeying God and living in a way that's contrary to how I know God would have me live. Is your affliction going to become less or greater? Well, you might say, well, it was, it was a little bit less there for a, a day or two when I was taking those drugs or I was drinking, you know, or I was running around with some person I shouldn't run around with. Yeah, it was a little bit better for a while, but it's going to get a whole lot worse on the backside of it. So even if we're going through afflictions, we need to kind of understand this general rule that we need to follow God. Trust God, trust what He's told us about how we should live, and things will go better for us in that respect 
than if we don't, right? So don't pile on. This is one of the things God's people do. They get into a situation of affliction. They become tempted in the midst of it, and then they fall away. They say, I'm having a tough time. I'm not going to go to church anymore. It's just too painful. That's one of the primary things. I can think of a half dozen people right now that are saying, I had this affliction going on, and I'm very troubled by it, and as a result, I'm not going to go to church. That is totally the wrong thing to do. They're doubling down on their own affliction. They're actually making their spiritual situation worse by doing that. So it's very important that we recognize that. And we're going to have to be able to draw some lessons out of the Old Testament. I always like to point out what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39. Search the Scriptures. Now what Scriptures was Jesus talking about? (laughs) New Testament hadn't been written at the time Jesus Christ said this. He's talking about search the Old Testament, right? Look at these things. And what is a guideline here that we're supposed to find in how we search the Scriptures? Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. That problem's still around today. People think eternal life is a result of the Bible or someone telling someone about the Bible. That's where the eternal life is. It's in this book or it came out of Brother Dan's mouth and it hit your ear and gave you eternal life. Wrong. In them ye think you have eternal life. There's Christians all over the nation today who are saying, in this is where you have eternal life. That's what they think. They sincerely think it. And uh, what does Jesus say about it? That's the most important thing, right? In them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You see, Jesus Christ is the one with eternal life. And all that is is a testimony of what He's done. Jesus Christ is the one who's dispensing eternal life. He's the good shepherd. He gives unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's what Christ does. It's not what the gospel does or what the the scriptures do. The scriptures merely tell you about that thing. And that may seem like a subtle theological point, but it's very different. You start running that out in how you're going to build a church and what your philosophy of ministry is and, and how you approach the matter of what the purpose of the church is. There's a huge difference between saying our preaching is giving people eternal life versus our preaching is telling people that Jesus gave you eternal life and I don't have nothing to do with it. Big difference. So hopefully gave you three verses in the New Testament and they're pointing back to the scriptures of the Old Testament. We're going to get some lessons out of the Old Testament and hopefully we're going to get some lessons out of what we find written about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There are 33 verses that mention all three of these men by name. Ten of them are in the New Testament. Five of them were spoken by Jesus Himself. So there's something important to look at in these patriarchs, and I want to try to pull some quick lessons out of them today. First of all, in Matthew chapter 1, is that these men established the family line of the nation of Israel, but also of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2, I'll I'll read verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see that? He's part of this family line, and they trace it back to Abraham. Obviously, it goes all the way back to Adam. Why does it start with Abraham in some of these references? Well, it's trying to draw out this issue of the spiritual family. And you'll find elsewhere, we'll dig into this more, where the New Testament begins to talk about how Abraham's faith is the same as your faith. You believe in the same God. The same God that regenerated him sitting in Ur over there selling idols is the same God that regenerated you and gave you a heart to want to hear God's Word, love God, serve God, have love for one another. Exact same God. It's the same faith. 
You say, well, Abraham had all these strange things. He had circumcision. He's offering burnt offerings and all this stuff. Seems like it's very different. Same faith, though, right? You see, there was a different order of worship in the Old Testament that they had. They had a different schedule of what they were going to do in terms of their worship of God that was prescribed to them. And with Jesus Christ coming as the fulfillment of all those types and shadows that were symbolized by that, we now have what I would regard as a much simplified form of worship that looks at, here's what Christ did. We're not doing all these animal sacrifices and all these sorts of things that looked forward to Christ and that symbolized Christ. We now know about Christ and what He did. All that has gone away as a form of worship. And now we worship Him in spirit and in truth and in the revelation of the gospel, which tells us what Christ did, of which those things were merely symbols and types that pointed to it. See that? So Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. That's Judah. That's sort of the Greek term for Judah. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Christ is said to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you see he's setting up this family line that goes down like this. So that's one aspect of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That patriarch line is that it is setting up the nation of Israel, a family relationship from a national and genetic perspective. You see that? But it signifies a broader family. Look over at Matthew chapter 8, pick it up in about verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. To another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now he's talking to a Gentile here. He's talking to basically a soldier and not an Israelite. And this man is expressing a belief in Jesus Christ that's greater than anything that Jesus has seen among the Jews. You see how this foreshadows something about this spiritual Israel is not the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was a picture of spiritual Israel. It was a chosen people, right? That's the key link you want to make. God chose the nation of Israel and dealt with them under a covenant that had to do with their national well-being and, and largely with temporal matters and how they would worship and so forth. But that symbolizes a bigger family, which is spiritual Israel, which is not just Jewish people. It also includes Gentiles. And we see this being alluded to here, right? Here's this guy. I think Jesus is, is sort of saying, these people, these Jewish people have had the oracles of God. We've, God has talked to them for generation after generation. They have the Bible, and they, they know these things in some sense. And yet, this, here's a man who has had no access to this. And he's exhibiting more faith and more understanding of the Lord than those people who had the Bible. That is pretty remarkable, is it not? Consider that the idea of Jesus marveling at something. That's something you could think about for a long time. How could Jesus marvel at something? And yet, 
That's what the Bible's testimony is about it. I've often wondered about exactly how that plays out. But I think it makes the point, however, that it's kind of ridiculous that these people had this much access to the Word of God, and yet here's a man who had none, and just through simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's exhibiting something tremendous in front of the Lord. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That is telling the story that this spiritual Israel that Jesus Christ has under the new covenant is much broader than just the Jewish nation. So it applies to these people who are outside the nation of Israel. And there's going to be a bigger family there. So it's part of a larger family. Look over in Luke 13. Well, you know what? In the interest of time, let me just keep going on this. Turn over to Matthew 22. I'd said this before, but I just want to kind of solidify it. Matthew 22 and about verse 32. So you've seen this. uh, You've probably heard this before. And Jesus is kind of being tempted the same day, I'm starting 23, the same day came unto him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, you know how this goes. All of them married her. They were all married to this woman once it's all said and done. And then, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, these people are people who deny the resurrection. Lots of Christians today deny the resurrection. That's a core tenet of the faith. They're testing Jesus with it. Their point of it is kind of like this. See, if you believe in the resurrection, it creates problems. Therefore, we're right to not believe in the resurrection. That's kind of the point of what they're trying to do with Jesus there. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Well, Jesus thought it was important to know the Scriptures. That's why He would say things like, search the Scriptures. And again, He's talking about the Old Testament there. right? For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in other words, this problem you've set up is not even a problem. right? You're assuming this is going to be a problem, and it's not. And if you knew the Scriptures, you would understand that. Not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which is spoken unto you by God, saying... Now this is Jesus talking about the resurrection. I've made the point many times over the past couple of years, I'm very distressed by how Christianity is (laughs) casting the resurrection aside. It's not that important. We don't really have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, you do. If he didn't, you've got no hope of ever (laughs) rising from anything. So, very, very important. Jesus Christ teaching it here. And not ashamed of it, but look what he says here. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? That was spoken to you in the Old Testament, right? Saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See there, he's taking it all the way back to the beginning of Israel. He's confronting people who are in this, really have a a high degree of social regard for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when he pulls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the matter, he's kind of saying, you don't really even understand 
your own religion. You don't really understand what that was all about. You make a lot of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're the sons of Abraham and all these sorts of things. You make a lot of that, but you really don't understand the Scriptures. And you don't understand that He's the God of the living. I mean, you're denying the resurrection out there. And these men are, He's the God of the living. By implication, what He's saying is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, right? They're with God. So to deny the resurrection would be to deny that those men were still alive, that there was life after death and all these sorts of things. So this is the same God then. This is Jesus speaking in the New Testament. It's speaking of the same God that had a covenant with the nation of Israel. But now through Jesus Christ, we're bringing forth this revelation of the new covenant, which is broader than just Israel. Let's look at Acts chapter 3. We'll do this as we close. And maybe what I'll do is leave this to you as a homework assignment for next week. You know I like to give homework. In Acts chapter 3, what you have is an instance where Peter and John go up and they heal a man at the temple. And this act is called into question. Later on in that chapter, we have the second sermon of the book of Acts, which starts in verse 12. And it says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified His Son Jesus. You see the connection that's being made there? Jesus Christ, speaking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, clearly identifying Jesus Christ as God's Son and also that Jesus is of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof ye are witnesses. Now, this is regarded as a very unkind thing to say, but it's the clear testimony of the Bible. The Bible lays the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at the hands of the Jewish people here. You see that? Now, when people say the Jews killed Jesus in modern society, they say, oh, that's a horrible, that's an anti-Semitic thing to say. It is a historical fact. Now, there are many elements of that. There, okay, the Roman government was involved in some respects, and they had some oversight over it. You can start looking at it. But if you just look at how the Bible talks about it, you're talking about Peter here preaching immediately in that time frame to Jewish people and saying, this is what you did. By the way, he was your Messiah that had been prophesied, and this is what you did. It seems from the testimony of the New Testament that really the Roman government would kind of been like, you know, we don't really want to mess with this situation of trying to crucify Jesus, right? Pilate's kind of like, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. I don't see he did anything wrong. But because the Jews rose up and were so outraged by the ministry of Jesus Christ and sort of for political reasons to prevent an insurrection and a big disturbance that might cause a lot of problems, they just said, well, we'll let these Jewish people handle it the way they want to handle it, right? So that gets brought up a lot, but it's important to point out that even Peter in a very early sermon in the book of Acts, he's talking about the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. This is the same God that they worshiped in the Old Testament. It's the same God we're worshiping in the New Testament. 
as we look at these patriarchs in the coming weeks, we're going to see that there are examples in their lives that parallel our lives in many respects. The way Abraham was called, the sort of faith he had, the sort of service he had to God. I suspect that as you look back over your own life, you're going to find instances where you say, that seems a lot like what happened to me. Brother Sonny talks about the waste howling wilderness. And these types of images where you can think of a difficult time in your life where you're in a waste howling wilderness and God comes to you and brings you some comfort, those are the sort of parallels that you can draw out of the patriarchs' lives. And we're going to start to look at them in the coming weeks. But I wanted to give you that as an introduction to it today, just to let you know that there's interplay between the Old Testament and New Testament. We need to draw lessons out of these people's lives. They're not totally irrelevant to us. They are relevant. We need to make sure that we don't run wild with uh, fanciful notions about how we try to draw parallels that are not intended. We should instead look at the meat and core lessons that are there for us in the lives of those patriarchs. And as we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the coming weeks, I think we're going to find instances. I'd be interested in hearing from each of you as we hit those. Like, you know, you, t you preach something about Jacob, and uh, it reminded me of something that happened in my life. Because I think I find instances like that in my own life with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I look forward to going through those with you in the coming weeks. I do want to try to finish early today so we can be sure to get out of here as soon as possible. I appreciate everyone's good attention. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.